George Orwell has that um, famous quote in Animal Farm, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. Uh, some of you have played, I, I assume you've played in an orchestra before, and if so, I want to ask you this question, which instrument section regards itself more equal than all the other instruments? Normally, the accusing finger gets pointed where? To the violins, of course, because, you know, they're the senior section. They carry the tune in most classical works, and therefore, you know, they have the greatest superiority complex, or at least so I'm told. Not so fast, say the violins. You know, they say that the flutes and the oboes are equally guilty. They, along with all the woodwinds, you know, regard with contempt the brass section, (laughs) those uncivilized and loud instruments led by the trumpets who consider themselves much superior to all the other brass. But even within the brass section, you know, there are those class distinctions. The trumpets are on top, followed by the horns, which are followed by the trombones, which are followed by the tubas. At the very bottom of the orchestra, anybody have a guess? It must be the percussion. And at the bottom of the percussion, (laughs) at the bottom of the percussion, it must be the triangle. Well, what Paul is doing, and you kind of sense it as Letizia was reading it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, is he's confronting uh, these, yeah, these different factions within the church, within the, the Christian orchestra, so to speak. Those who consider themselves um, more equal than all of the other instruments or all the other people. And as a result, we, and we've been seeing this throughout our sermon series in 1 Corinthians, um, the music is off. The, mu- the music is absolutely off in the church. In this case, we think the people who are puffed up with pride are those who have extraordinary gifts. I mean, gifts of, of prophecy, gifts of, of speaking in, in tongues, uh, gifts of healing. And Paul's going to basically criticize their attitudes and behaviors in chapters 12 through 14 and basically say, hey, you guys are you're not more spiritual because you have this crazy awesome spiritual gift. It's not because you play a more special instrument. Uh, What is the true mark of spirituality always? It's, yeah, it's love. And we, you know, lead, it leads into the great love chapter in chapter 13. Let's give our attention to verses 4 through 13 and 24 and 20, 24 through 26 again. Now there are different gifts, but the same spirit. And there are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God works all of them in each person. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. To one is given a message of wisdom through the Spirit, to another a message of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by by the one Spirit, to another the performing of miracles, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, uh, to another different kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. One and the same spirit is active in all these, distributing to each person as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many are one body, so also is Messiah, is Christ. For we are all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. And skip ahead. And he says, Instead, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable, so that there would be a no division in the body, but that the members would, would have the same concern for one another. 
So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Okay, let's pray once again. Our Father in heaven, we ask you to please help us to better understand what spiritual gifts we have um, and how to use them to make beautiful music. And following you, the same conductor, playing from the same score, many different instruments, uh, one glorious symphony. We, we, we ask that you would please do that in, in our, our little church plants here. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, if you're just joining with us, yeah, we've been doing a sermon series in 1 Corinthians. This is probably not the best passage to jump into on, on your first Sunday here, but I, I, you know, we, we were just preaching through the book, and, and I trust the Lord will, will say something to you through it. We're not going to spend a lot of time on each of the various gifts. Uh, I want to make this introductory statement. Like, sometimes people refer to the extraordinary gifts, like prophecy, speaking in tongues, miracles, and healings as charismatic gifts. The, the problem with that, it's rather redundant because charism is the Greek word for gift. So charismatic gifts is, literally means gift gifts. And in reality, every one of the gifts that are listed, they're, they're, they're all from the Spirit. They're all charismatic gifts. Every gift is a charismatic gift. You know, Paul referred, you may have noticed, to, to some people who have an unusual amount of faith, you know, a faith that can move mountains in verse 9. Uh, another one of the verses, people who have the ability to work miracles, okay? I can understand how that would, you know, puff somebody up with some pride if you could do that. Uh, he speaks of the gift of healing, and maybe when you hear, like, healing, ugh, uh, your mind immediately goes to some greedy televangelists on television who has abused, I mean, a number of these have, these gifts have been abused. But right after those extraordinary gifts, he also speaks about perfectly mundane gifts, such as the gift of helping or the gift of administration. Have you thought about that before? Basically, he's saying the person with the gift of Excel spreadsheets, <laughs> he puts that person right alongside the person who can work miracles, who has, you know, healing powers and, and faith that can move mountains. It's kind of wild that he sees no distinction between the two. Spreadsheets and limbs being, you know, regrown on a human being. They're all from the same spirit. Okay, the best way that I have heard spiritual gifts described before is like this. When you are teaching a, a child to write their letters for the very first time, you know, their, their fingers are around the pencil or the pen, and what you may do is you may take your hand and, you know, carve it, curve it around their hand, and while they're forming their letters under their own power, you are granting your power to them. You're guiding them to, to fill out these letters, and we should think, I think we should think of spiritual gifts in those terms, that God is curving his hand, the Holy Spirit is curving his hand around our hand, around our abilities, lending us his guidance, lending, lending us his movement, lending us his power in order to, you know, accomplish something that we could not simply do on our own. What is a spiritual gift? A spiritual gift is any ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit 
and used for the good of the community. I mean, if it's an ability that you really don't have, like you don't have the gift of healing, then you would say it's pretty much entirely his power that is at work. If it's an ability that you have a a natural disposition to, like you might be really good with organization, and and so administration may come fairly uh, easily to you, but still, it's, it's him channeling his power and guidance into you. How do we recognize spiritual gifts? I, I was listening or uh, reading this uh, story that Tim Keller told. Um, Tim Keller is a kind of a famous pastor who passed away uh, recently, pastor up in New York City. And when he was a very a brand new minister, age 24, he went to a small rural, rural not, it's not rural, but sm- a smaller church in Hopewell, Virginia. And he's, he'd only been on the job for a week or so. And the folks in the congregation, I guess they wanted to sort of put him in place and kind of give him the, their view of the lay, lay of the land. And so somebody comes into his office and says, uh, okay, Tim, you see those trailers out there? And they, they were in a poor part of town, and there were people living in, in trailers and trailer parks right around the church. And, and they said, you see those trailers out there? None of the people in those trailers come to our church. You know what the problem is with our church? Do you know why we're not reaching those people? It's because we don't have a heart for evangelism. Like we ought to be out there you know, sharing our faith, you know, talking to them about Jesus, about God's love, but our church just doesn't do that. That's the problem with us. A couple days later, uh, another person walks into his office and says virtually the same thing. True story. See those trailers out there? And he's like, yes. And you know what the problem is? Those people, they're from a different social class than we are. Those people, they have have a lot of challenges. And, and you know, we don't want them in our church because because our church doesn't really care about the poor, and we don't want to take on their problems and and make them our own. And that's, that's what's going on here. And he says, duly noted. As you might imagine, a few days later, a third person comes into his office and says, you see those trailers out there? And he should have said by this point, trailers? What trailers? Do you know what the problem is with our church? And he should have said yes, but he was only 24, so he didn't, didn't have that pastoral insight. But uh, our church has a lot of people who have a lot of goodwill, and they want to reach out to that neighborhood, but we just don't know how to execute it. We don't, have, we don't know how to organize. Uh, we don't know how to like, set up a project and, and carry it through to its, to, to its, to its end and execute it. And years later, as he's reflecting on that, he, he said, they're all right. They were all right. They were, they were all correct. You know, they weren't saying the same things, and they weren't even seeing the same things. But, but in a very real sense, they were all right. And they were, and here's the real insight, they were all most likely utilizing their spiritual gifts to look out onto the world and to see it through those different, through those different lenses. You know, different gifts, different affinities, different vantage points. You know, how many of you have taken a spiritual gift inventory test before? A lot of us have. It's basically like a personality test. You, you, take, you fill in the blanks or you know, answer, answer these like, you know, uh, do you like to do this? And you have a few different options there. And, you know, sometimes those work, helping us to discern what our spiritual gifts are, are like. But I I think that a lot of times we can identify our spiritual gifts or our spiritual affinities by what we look at and what we pay attention to. 
And frankly, what troubles or annoys us, I heard somebody say this week, you know, that how much, how frustrated she was when she would be in a class and a teacher was just doing a bad job of that. You know, she said like, oh, I can't stand sitting in, in a Sunday school class. I guess they had Sunday school at, at the church she's at. And, and we're like 60 minutes into it. And she's like, don't you realize, teacher, that people have been checked out for 40 minutes? And it just drives me crazy. Like, don't you see this? You got to see this. And what she realized is, no, God made me to, to see that because that's probably actually one of my gifts. It's, it's, made, it's how God made you to look out on the world and to understand it. And so I know I have never actually told people this before. Um, you probably never heard a pastor say this before, but I really do think that there's some validity behind your gripes. Like what, it, what is it that annoys you? What is it that frustrates you uh, about our church <laughs> or about the way that we that we engage the world, most likely behind that frustration is actually, you know, some of your own spiritual affinities, you know. I know what happens to us quite regularly is when we find something in our church that disappoints us, that is the cause for us actually to disengage, right? These people, they're so disappointing. I feel disillusioned by this community. It's so incongruous that these people would profess this, and then behave like this, and whenever that happens, we pull back. But it was Bonhoeffer who said, you know, those who love their dream of Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. Like, the the best community always gets formed, uh, really, the best community always gets formed on the other side of disappointment. The best community always gets formed on the other side of annoyance and, and frustration. And like our willingness to, to process our own disappointment with the church, which is many, and the, the hypocrisies of the church, which are many, and to actually do something about it, you know, probably that, that's one of the greatest marks of spiritual maturity. And, and so, yeah, I, I am not the pastor who is worried about hearing your gripes because, and it's not like you guys come and gripe to me. I'm being hyperbolic, but I really think that gripes can, can be good because more than likely there is some type of spiritual gifting or affinity that, behind that. And isn't this what Paul says in verse 7? That a manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. Like the whole, the whole idea is, it, it, I, God, has, Jesus said, I want you to have this so that you would bless the whole for, for, the, for the common good, for the sake of others, not merely for our own good. For, it's like the anti-consumeristic verse of the Bible. <laughs> we're, we're, he gives the gifts for the common good. And there's one other additional way uh, I'd like to suggest to you of identifying your gifts, and you may be able to remember it by just looking at a stick of butter. To me, and this works especially as an illustration on the week of Thanksgiving, there is no greater food that heightens the sense of festivity more than butter, right? Butter, real butter, the real stuff. I mean, butter, butter makes bread better. Butter, butter makes cookies cookies. There would be no such thing as a cookie without a lot of butter inside of it. Butter makes all foods delightful to share with others, right? 
And so maybe, maybe what you could do, I mean, we're a small church, we're a fledgling church, we're asking the Holy Spirit you know, to work in us. Maybe what you can do is look out on our, on our community and say, like, what part of this community needs a little more bu- butter on it? You know, what needs, look around and see either in our community or in our surrounding neighborhood, what, where is the butter lacking? What is, what is being done with little to, to no butter? Um, because that may very well be, you know, where the Holy Spirit wants to work. If that's too corny and cheesy, forgive me, <laughs> but, but it resonated with me. Questions and cautions. Number one, uh, do, do I have a gift? The answer is, if the Holy Spirit is in you, absolutely, you have a gift, and, and you have many. Uh, he's happy to take whatever abilities he has and channel himself through you. Although, I'm nervous about saying something. When somebody says, I have a gift, I mean, as though we don't have gifts the same way that we have cars or we have houses. We don't possess, possess gifts the way we possess a book. I mean, if anything, the Spirit has us, right? He grabs us, and he lets, uh, he's pleased to let his power and energy flow through us. So, number two, well, you notice there were a bunch of miracles and miraculous gifts that were listed in 1 Corinthians 12. I mean, what about those? What about gifts of prophecy and speaking in tongues? Skip to question number three. <laughs> no, um, you've heard me speak before. I, I think miraculous gifts are absolutely still around, still here. Uh, I think we're all troubled by the fact that, that most of us see them so infrequently. But what I would say is the lack of miracles we see in our day and place, it, it's probably not because we're just doing everything wrong. Um, I, I don't think that—that's what our flinch is. Like, the American church, oh, we're just so bad. We're doing everything wrong. We are bad. <laughs> we got problems. But I really think miracles are the prerogative of God. You know, it, it's not like if we got our act together, um, like the early church, then we'd start seeing miracles left and right. No, I mean, if God is pleased to do miracles in Southeast Asia and South America and in Africa and not here right now, the way, the same way, like— isn't that his decision, if he's the Lord? Um, what, what I do notice in the Bible is that it's not as though the Bible is a book of a constant stream of miracles. I mean, they're basically punctuated moments in, in biblical history, miracle clusters that you know, show up at certain times with special men like Moses or special moments of the people of the children of Israel you know, coming out of slavery or special prophets, Elijah and Elisha. It's not a steady, uniform stream. And, and even if it were, um, Paul's point in this chapter is that miracles don't, they don't matter that much. They really don't matter. I mean, having a wonderful spiritual experience doesn't mean that you are sp- super spiritual. No, he's going to sh- take us to where all the spiritual gifts are supposed to lead. And it's that four-letter word. It's, it's all supposed to lead to love, to, to love in chapter 13. So for him, what matters is love. And you can always gauge, really, the health of any kind of community by the, the temperature barometer of how much love is, is in that place, right? Um, number three, and it's just a caution, you beware of the gift cop-out. I'll pick this as an example because you know, we don't have a nursery right now. We're so small. And, and I can say this without offending anyone. You know, most churches 
chronically struggles to staff their nursery with enough volunteers or to staff their children's church with enough volunteers. And, you know, it's almost that people will come to you as a pastor from time to time and say, hey, pastor, the problem, yeah, the nursery is not my spiritual gift, right? That's what they'll say. Nursery, well, yeah, it's a need, but it's, you know, it's not, it's not where my, my heart is really drawn to. It's not my spiritual gift. It's funny because very few people have the spiritual gift of nursery. <laughs> but every, every Christian's spiritual gift uh, is love, right? It's supposed to be love. Sometimes you hear people say, okay, you, affinity is when you sort of look, look out, Aptitude is when you look in and see what you're capable of. And um, opportunity is when you, you look around. And when you have a small church, you got a lot of opportunity. <laughs> so, yeah, affinity, uh, aptitude, opportunity. Love is a spiritual gift every Christian has. Here's a specific way you can look out for me and, and sort of pastor me as a pastor. I've told you before that I have an almost pathological fear of placing burdens on other people. Like, you've heard me say, my, one of my biggest fears of church planting is I don't want to be the, the guy who ends up burning you out. And, and, you know, you go on and tell people later on, yeah, I was part of this church plant in South Scottsdale, and oh, it was so hard, and, and it just set me back, you know, 10 years of my spiritual journey. Um, I don't want to burn you out. And, and if I'm bad, if I'm pathological, Aaron is like, pathological on steroids when it comes to not wanting to burden other people. And that's not a healthy dynamic with your only pastor. Um, you know, here's something that happens. People often get pla- placed in positions of leadership because they're great at doing. They're doers. They're just like, do, 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 do. But being a great doer doesn't translate to being a great leader, you know, because the best leaders are the people that are able to to get a lot of other people together, like working for a common goal, and who involve other people and are not just doing it, it all themselves. It's kind of the classic, what got you here won't get you there, leadership conundrum. And I don't think that I do it all, because I definitely don't. But I know that you know, my total flinch is to, to try to do almost it all, <laughs> and, and to not to not incorporate you better. And so as we move into 2024, what I would love for our church to do is to create some more ministry teams of three or more people, at least, where, where we could have more people's spiritual gifts aligning um, in a direction together. And, and one of the weird dynamics of, of, of pastoring a small church is, is the solo pastor. I'm like the, the spoke at the at the center of the wheel, and you all have this connection with me. You hear me every Sunday. You come over to my home. We share a meal. I know your story. You know my story, but, but getting you connected to each other is a little more challenging, isn't it? And honestly, the best way to do that is for you, like, you to work together as teams on doing things, and so you know, a lot of times the best teams have these elements, and no, this is not in 1 Corinthians 12, but I think it's worth um, mentioning. These elements of a good team, you've got somebody with visionary capacity, the person who's able to look at a situation and say, that is where we're going, we, that's where we have to go, and some of us are more visionary than others. Uh, then you have a second category, an implementer. Uh, we're going there, and here's what we need to do in order to, to do it. Here's how we have to implement it. And then the third category, 
a manager, somebody who troubleshoots along the way and, and makes sure people are working together and, and keeps it running. Uh, a lot of times, you know, somebody who's great with visionary is not a very good manager, right? Or somebody who's really good with implementer. And I just think that those, those traits all somehow fit into our personality and gift matrix. And if we could get a few more teams that had some of those elements on them, ah, it, I think we'd become a healthier church in, um, in 2024. So you can pray for that, and we, we can hopefully work towards that. Uh, finally, if you're like, whoa, 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 I cannot handle anything more on my plate right now. I am so fried. You know, I, I'm in a season of life where I'm just tapped out with work and family obligations. I don't have anything else to give. That is okay. Just come and receive. You know, come and, come and receive the grace, the grace of God. Come and receive. And, that's, and do it without any shame, you know, because that's what Christ wants for, for you. Let me finish by very quickly looking at verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. And here he, he's making just the obvious metaphorical point that if you have a body, uh, you know, you have to celebrate the diversity in that body. You know, you got hands and you got toes and you got elbows and you have ears and you need every one of them or your body's not going to function well. It's, it's one body in many parts. He's saying that because, hey, we've got lots of different Lots of different gifts in this congregation, and we need to celebrate them all. And those, those uh, gifts that are maybe not as, as uh, extraordinary, like administration, that we need to celebrate the administrator every bit as much as we celebrate the healer, he, he's saying. You can't be a body without d- d- diversity. Um, but gifts come in, in and through people, and people come with different stories and, and, and different backgrounds. And what, what I really think, what I really think he's, he's pointing at here is every church needs diversity. It needs, it needs, we need diversity. We need ethnic diversity and, and gender diversity and socioeconomic diversity. And we all know that over the last few years, our nation has been sorted into these little, you know, buckets, silos of politics, ideology, race, class, tribes that want nothing to do with one another. And and who, who would look out on our country and say that we have not been impoverished by this? We have. We have been impoverished by it. And so just as the church has to fight for unity, and we're always having to fight for unity, uh, it also has to fight against homogeneity. Now, you don't hear that often, do you? Like, let's fight for our unity. Yes. And, but let's also fight against homogeneity. You know, like, woe to the church that all looks alike and sounds alike, that has you know, 30 toes and no elbows, <laughs> you know. You know, we, 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 need, we need ethnic diversity and gender diversity and socioeconomic diversity. And as you know, that was a lot of the heart of at least trying to plant this church was to try to achieve that. And it's not an optional add-on. It's, it's a must. It's a must to have a healthy body. A pastor friend of mine in Tucson, Charles Garland, years ago he was doing campus ministry and he led a Bible study at Fiji House at Auburn, Auburn University, the, the Bible study was going well, and one day he, said, he thought, oh, I'm going to talk to these guys about church. And 
He said, uh, why don't you guys go to church at all? And, and they replied to him, Charles, we don't, we don't really feel like we need to go to church because we have all the community that we need at Fiji House. And Charles is really witty. And he looks back at them and he says, oh, but you don't have a nursery. <laughs> and you don't have anybody old. You don't have any girls. <laughs> and that, honestly, that could be said to so many, to so many in our world today. Homogeneity feels, it feels comfortable. It really does feel comfortable. Be around people that think exactly like us and have, have the same background as us. And uh, it might even make us feel more spiritual because we can go deeper and we have to have less, you know, guards up. That's, that's great, but that's not the picture that we're given of the Bible and of the, of the body of Christ in the New Testament. You know, it's, we're baptized into the same family, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, all across the spectrum. And we're supposed to be interdependent on one another. Think of three final images. Number one, the puzzle. You can have a bunch of puzzle pieces on the table, and you may do it this week. You may have a, a tradition similar to ours where we'll work a Thanksgiving puzzle. And the pieces are all scattered and, and individually all they are are just blobs of color, right? Individually, they're just blobs of aggregated color across a table. They're largely incomprehensible. They're just an, an aggregate. Yeah. The only way that they, they come, they, 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 they bring out something wonderful and beautiful is when that aggregate is all linked together, interdependent, right? That's the point of a puzzle. And what we're always struggling with in church is just not living, not being an aggregate, but being linked. Or think of another image, the image of a 3D printer. You know, they put a, a plastic filament into a 3D printer. I never knew how these worked, but, but apparently they put these plastic filaments about the, the width of my microphone cord into the printer, and when the, it just ends up creating, you know, three, something three-dimensional. And when the Holy Spirit channels himself through us, kind of like a 3D printer, you get a, a three-dimensional representation of, of Christ, a three-dimensional representation of the body of Christ. When you put the puzzle pieces together, you start to see a, a picture of Christ, but when you, you know, let the Spirit channel himself through your gifts, you get this, this 3D image of Jesus' body on earth. Or, yeah, think of the symphony illustration we started out at the beginning of the of the sermon. Everybody in here has a gift. Everybody in here has a story, has a history. Like, everyone is in here as unique as a thumbprint. Everyone in here is, is as unique as, as a snowflake. And God says, Jesus says, I need all of you. Like, what does this church need? It needs, it needs you. <laughs> it, it needs absolutely you. All these different kinds of people with all their different personalities and all of their different backgrounds and their different experiences all together, you know, playing from the same score, the score of the gospel, you know, following the same conductor, the Lord Jesus, in verse 25, you know, caring for one another. Here it is, so that there would be, you know, no division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern for each other, the same love for one another, and that's what we're aiming for. As chapter 13 is going to demonstrate next week, our love for one another flows out of the great, the great love that Jesus Christ has for us, and, 
And chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, uh, it perfectly, perfectly describes the Lord Jesus Christ. And I look forward to looking at that with you uh, next weekend. Amen.